Welcome to the Urban Robot Cat Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Likens. I'm Chris IWK. And I'm Corey from Strange Cat Toys. And we're here for episode 27. That's more than two baker's dozens. That's more than two baker's dozens. We have to talk about the sponsors. We do have to talk about the sponsors. And first up, we have Stickerfied. Stickerfied.com made a wonderful sticker for us, and they want to do the same for you. So make sure to hit them up, Stickerfied.com. No Love City, NoLoveCity.com, where you can get the full color Urban Robot Cat t-shirt. Uh, use the code UrbanRobotCat at checkout and you'll receive 10% off your order. We also have SD Prints, SDScreenPrinting.net made some wonderful items for us that we are going to soon be giving away. So make sure to keep up with us on Instagram to find out how you might have a chance to win. And we have TYO Toys. TYOtoys.com makes some wonderful DIY platforms for you to create your own original artwork on. And you can check them out over at TYOtoys.com. What have you guys been up to, Chris? Um, what have I been up to? Well, I, uh, I did the, uh, we had the second version of the, the simple math print come out. Uh, I want to say thank you to everybody who picked one up that sold out in less than three minutes this time, which was pretty cool. Um, so we wound up doing like a AP version and we're working on something else for the people who missed out because, uh, dealing with a whole bunch of emails, kind of complaining, not complaining, but, you know, wishing they were able to get it kind of makes me feel bad. So I want to make people happy. So we're trying to figure out something to do for another release for the, uh, another version of the print maybe. And that's about it. Maybe run like a like a timed pre-order, like twenty minutes yeah, or something. Th- that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna probably do a a timed print. Basically, everybody would just have the heads up that they can just basically pre-order it, so they could actually get it this time. Yeah. Because I, f- I feel it's. I know it sounds cheesy, but I feel bad. You know, I I wish. I, I don't do prints a lot. I'm not a big print fan. So when I did it, everybody kind of I guess freaked out and kind of wanted to grab it. Um, so. Just hopefully they'll get the chance to get this uh, timed print release or whatever they want to call it. What about you, Corey? Turn on your post notifications for Chris. There you go. Uh, just hanging out and packing orders and doing the dad at home thing. You know? That's what you're doing every week. Yeah, blowing up the pool in the backyard and all that fun Florida stuff. It's Florida. It's nice and warm. You can swim, I guess. It's like half a foot deep. It's like a kid's pool. You've got strange cat money. Why don't you get a real pool? <laughs> well, you just get one of those above ground pools, you know? I don't know. It seems a little bit too white trash to have one of those. If you're also in Florida, you can have it open like all year round. It's not like you're up here in the cold weather where you got to panic and close it up. That's true. <laughs> what have you been up to, Travis? Uh, not a ton. Just been doing the day job. Kind of trying to get some projects started for 2021. We've got a bunch of stuff that's finishing up at the factory here in the next uh, month or so. So hopefully in the fall, we'll have a bunch of new releases for everybody. But uh just a lot of management back and forth, trying to get uh, everything finished up and then everything started. Um, as we've talked about before on this podcast, uh, as soon as you get done with one thing, making toys, you got to start on the next one. So you don't really get time to enjoy the previous one. So that's the stage I'm in is passing from one project to the next. But we're not just here to talk about Chris's new print, Corey's one foot deep pool. So Chris said that he does not like prints. And yet, Our guest is someone who makes a lot of prints. So this week, we are excited to announce we have Columbus-based artist Brian Ewing on the line. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Good. You just totally threw Chris under the bus, didn't you? (laughs) That's what we do on this podcast. He's got to strike first. Otherwise, he knows I will. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Stoked to be on your podcast, man. And it finally occurred to me. The na- how you got the name of the podcast. So you just took all three business names and made that. So 
I'm catching on. We actually uh, had previously talked about that in an episode, but I, I cut it out. And so you can be the person that now tells everybody else that. Oh my God. Yes, it was me. So Brian, for the people that uh, may not know who you are, could you let everybody know a little bit about yourself and what it is you do in the world of art? My name is Brian Ewing. I've lived in Columbus, Ohio for eight years now. Uh, A little over three years ago, I started tattooing. And over 17 years ago, I began my illustrious career as a rock poster artist. So I do tattooing and rock posters still. I'm also half of Metacrypt with Justin Jewett. He created the Shub Zera toy, which was sculpted by the people that do the Ultraman toys, Sekaluna. And it's Japanese vinyl, and it's produced in Japan through Gertie Shogun. And we've done over 17 releases. So I kind of get to play in both sandboxes of illustration, tattooing, and I guess the third would be uh, vinyl toys. So that's me. Did you kind of uh, start out always being kind of artistic or did you kind of develop that as you grew older? Yeah, I think everybody does start out that way. It's just a matter of, do you follow through with it? You know, because every kid draws. Heard somebody say everybody draws until somebody tells them it sucks. (laughs) Yeah, or there's just no encouragement. So for me, I have an older brother and sister and they were very uh, creative. My sister went to a high school of the arts that I ended up attending years later. And so because they would bring projects home from school or whatever, you know, I'd be so amazed by that, that I would try to replicate it, not knowing like what I was doing, but it was just a lot of fun. And also I didn't want to like have a real job, I guess. Didn't you uh, grow up in Minnesota somewhere up that way? No, I was born in uh, La Mesa, California. Then we lived on Oahu for a little bit. And then my parents divorced and I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There we go. Home of, you know, the beer, Laverne and Shirley, Jeffrey Dahmer, all that stuff. And the Milwaukee Bucks. Dude, I have like, I have soft artist hands. I don't like sports, you know? <laughs> when you talk about like every kid starts drawing, like, you know, people would say, that, but like, well, I, I kept drawing and all my friends started doing sports. Like that was the thing. It's like, there you go. It kind of went one way or the other. For me, all my friends started doing drugs and tried to be in bands and stuff like that. And I just kept drawing. That was the only difference. Like they're like all the kids I grew up with, we didn't join any kind of like sports teams or anything because I don't know. Maybe it was just that generation. Too cool. (laughs) Yeah. Or the public funding for public schools was just shitty. So it's hard to tell. So, yeah, I grew up in mostly the Midwest and now I'm back for whatever reason. I think that's an interesting story about how you ended up back here. So you used to live in New you lived in New York for a long period of time and then came out to Columbus, right? And then decided to stay? Yeah. There's the Columbus College of Art and Design. And a friend of mine, Woodrow Hinton, invited me to come out to lecture there. And I was supposed to go to South by Southwest the next day from New York. I went to Columbus to and then I was supposed to Let's go to Austin and UPS lost all my stuff. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to Austin because I was supposed to be a part of an exhibit called Flatstock that's there every year. And I had nothing to sell or exhibit. So I just didn't go. So some other people were just like, hey, you know, hang out with us. So they showed me around and I was paying about $4,000 a month for an apartment that's probably like a little bit bigger than your car. And uh, a studio in Queens and, you know, just cost of living, like train pass, you know, fucking slice of pizza, beer here, there. And it was just stressing me out. So I thought I, if I 
York on good terms, I can always come back. So that's what I did. And I've been here for about eight years. Well, I, I think that the reason that story is kind of important is that it also led you to something totally different than what you were doing previously, which is tattooing. Yes. I guess as somebody that is, you know, kind of a, a print artist or illustrator or those kind of things, what is the craziest thing from going from that into the world of tattooing? Realizing how much you suck. Because clearly you can, you you know, you can draw, you can create, but like tattooing has to be just a total crazy transition. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's no fun uh, to be honest. Cause it's like, you do anything long enough. You're like, man, I'm pretty good at this. And then you try something new and you realize like, Oh, I suck at this. I'm, Let's not do that anymore. Let's just stick with what I'm good at. Uh, tattooing is definitely something that it's kind of like uh, the Michael Jordan theory. Everybody wants to be Michael Jordan, but there's only one Michael Jordan. With tattooing, you not everybody starts out amazing. You have to build up to it. And so I'm definitely building up to it. Uh, I've been doing it for over three years, and I everybody's like, hey, how's tattoo going? tattooing going? And I'm just like, well, I... I don't suck as much as I used to. I have high standards because I work at a shop called Cauldron Tattoo. And I work with two artists named Mike Moses and Emmanuel Mendoza. And they're so good that it's like, even if I think I did something good, if it doesn't match what they did or even come close, I feel like I sucked. So it's good to have them there because they're really positive, encouraging people. So it's me that's always saying like, oh, you suck at this. You, You need to do better. So... Yeah, it's awkward. It's totally weird, man. And the the funny thing is I'm 10 years older than Mike, who's apprenticing me. He's my mentor. And, you know, so a lot of people are like, oh, this has got to be weird. And I just try to keep the mindset of wherever I can learn how to improve, that's where I want to be. So I don't get upset if, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I'm so old and here's someone younger teaching me how to do something. I'm pretty stoked on it. It's just Still, there's always that, like, I wish I was better at it. I don't know. I'm sure you guys go through the same, you know. You're never too old to learn something new. Yeah, you are. And (laughs) (laughs) the thing is, you think you've mastered everything. So whatever new thing you try, you're going to be good at right away. And it's not always the case. So like with tattooing, it wasn't. And I really appreciate it because it's made me like drawing again. Because with posters... I have to draw when I have a project, you know, otherwise I'm doing email, I'm doing Instagram, I'm shipping orders. But with tattooing, I have to draw every day because I have to tattoo that day. So it's taught me how to kind of like be less lazy and to work faster and to think about the whole thing right away instead of, you know, over a couple of weeks. So I really appreciate that. Do you guys have tattoos? I do not. I do. I got a few pieces from a few different friends. I waited until I was like in my 20s to finally get one because I didn't want to get stuck with something horrible. I was too worried. That's a good idea. <laughs> so I basically waited till my friends got a lot better and I was like, all right, now you guys can tattoo me. When I was younger, I was the same way with friends who were learning to tattoo. They're like, let me tattoo. It's like, nope. Yep. No <laughs> way, man. Give it 10 years. Maybe then. You know. Yeah. I have, a, I have a bunch of friends that, like, back in the 90s, all got, like, really bad tribal stuff from my friend who was tattooing because he wanted, you know, he wanted to practice line work and, and his black work and everything like that. And mm-hmm. it was the 90s, so that's what everybody was getting. <laughs> the Goldberg tattoo. Yeah. Everybody exactly. was uh, Red Hot Chili Pepper fans, you know? Yeah. I would say Corey's got tattoos. No, Corey? No, Corey has a bunch of tattoos. He used to have a Hatchet Man tattoo. Oh, he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to take this. I heard Juggalos. 
I left yes, and I came back go. and I heard juggling. All right. We were talking about your Hatchaman tattoo. Yes. Oh, man. It's not there anymore. It's covered up. But it always will be there. What did you yes, uh, cover it up with? Another hatchet man. <laughs> just just man. a star. Yeah, usually with like cover-ups, when people come in, they're like, hey, can you take this rebel flag, this ex-girlfriend, <laughs> this whatever, off? And we're like, not really, but we can cover it up. The cover-up tattoo has to be three times the size of the tattoo they want to cover up. And so some people, you, you just see their eyes widen like, yeah, we're not going to do that. No, no. Because, <laughs> you know... People got really stupid big tattoos when they were younger, so it's it's pretty interesting. But Juggalos uh, are amazing here because the first week I moved here, uh, this friend was driving me up down the main street called High Street. He's like, hey, man, what do you think of Columbus so far? And we had just driven past somebody dressed like with a Juggalo face paint on. I was like, I don't know, man there's a juggler walking down the street. So I guess this is going to be interesting. <laughs> it's just like New York, right? Yeah. It's just full of weirdos. I, listen, I'm going to be honest. I've lived in New York my whole life. I don't think I've ever seen a juggler walking around New York in full makeup. No, you won't. You'll see people walking around in their underwear and cowboy hats. Yep. You know, or, or something, but never as jugglers. You'll see rockabilly people first before you see a juggler, which is probably pretty rare. Well, it depends on the circles you're running, I guess. Or it depends on the night or if you're at, like, you know, the shrunken head or whatever. Yeah, exactly. As much fun as everybody makes fun of that group, they're such good business people. They came up with their own currency. Like, you cannot buy anything at their shows with actual currency. You have to buy one of their their juggalo credits or bucks or whatever to buy any merch there, which is really smart. They are incredible. Like they were incredible business slash marketing people. You know, if only the lyrics and the music were just as good. <laughs> I you can only love, have one. You can't have both. That's true. I used to love their fights with Sharon Osbourne on Howard Stern. Those used to be so funny. I had to look up the Ellen things. I didn't, I didn't know how to reference them. Brian, I don't, I don't know if you heard anything about this, but did she do some sort of like diss to tattooing or something? I've, a couple of my tattoo friends have posted like, fuck Ellen, basically. Uh, I have no idea. And the funny thing about tattooing is tattooers think they are the center of the universe. So I kind of like try to avoid a lot of that because I realize, you know, poster artists think they're the center of the universe. Toy designers think they're the center of the universe. And you realize nobody is. So if she did, that's funny, I guess. You know, like if you can't take a celebrity making fun of what you do, then maybe you shouldn't do it, you know. Mm. And Really, if you think Ellen's a threat to you, then you have issues. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's funny about the tattooers and, and feeling that, that, that ego kind of thing. I've always kind of felt, though, I would want a tattoo artist with an ego because you want somebody who's confident in what they're doing on your skin. Yes, and you know they all are. It's just some are just, you know, <laughs> they they forget to, like, you know, dial it down a bit when they're around other people. So, you know, yes, you definitely want someone who isn't too nervous about what they're doing, you know, cause they're all nervous. They just, who, you know, it's just a matter of like, if I'm nervous around a client, they could tell. And then that makes me more nervous. And, uh, that's when I'm like, Hey, I gotta go answer this non-existing phone call. And I'll just like walk out of the room take a couple of breaths, come back, and just like, all right, I can do this. It's kind of like Dirk Diggler at the end of, uh, God, what is that movie? Now I just forgot. Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights, yes. So you're just like, yeah, you can do this, man. You're a st- 
dark. And then you kind of go back into it and you're like, all right, you know, let's do this. Uh, but you're, you're right. You do. You definitely want someone who, if they don't know what they're doing, they're going to at least make you believe they know what they're doing. Do you think that tattooists have been like that like forever? Or do you think that when all those reality shows and stuff came out, people started to kind of act the part? I think it's always been like that. When I got tattooed, it was in the 90s. So, I mean, that was before that. And that was in New York? Yeah. That was even crazier because it was still pretty illegal, wasn't it? It was like... You know, back of a shop yeah. kind of thing. Back of the coffee shop. Yeah. Um, yeah. In 95, I think it became legal in New York. Okay. So, yeah. I used to work at a tattoo magazine called Skin and Ink before I did any of the poster stuff. So, like, my last real, like, day job before I quit all that. Like, I haven't had a real day job since 2003, thankfully. But my last real day job, I worked for Hustler magazine. So, I had, like, an office there. And one of the magazines I worked on was Skin and Ink. And uh, sometimes the editor would send me out to tattoo shops in L.A. And I'd have to, like, photograph some of those people because I would end up doing, like, a portrait illustration kind of thing for one of the issues. And those guys were fucking dicks because they could be, you know. And uh, back in the day, like, you know, soccer moms didn't get tattooed. It was... I grew up in, growing up in Milwaukee, tattooing was illegal. So in, when I was younger, even like hitting 18, nobody had tattoos. It wasn't legal until like 2005. So if you saw somebody with a tattoo, they were either in the armed forces, in jail, or in a gang. So, you know, if you saw somebody, you're like, wow, that person is fucking dangerous. So nowadays it's like everybody and their mom has a tattoo, you know. So the ego thing, like, is it's always been there, which, you know, it, okay. it is what it is. And it used to be like a kind of like a, like you said, it was kind of like you were, from, you went somewhere else to get it done, or you were kind of like a quote unquote badass, right? That you had one in the first place. And that's kind of gone away, but the tattoo ego kind of stayed, I guess. Oh, yeah. It's amazing because, you know, the tattoo artist is getting like $100 an hour, $150, 200 you know, people like Kat Von D make 500 or more an hour. Some people charge $1,000 a day, and it all depends on how long you can sit for a tattoo. So you're already, you know, like your ego is already inflated there, but then people then just throw on the adulation. You know, they just kind of like add to it. They just blow more smoke, which is kind of like unnecessary, but it is what it is, you know. I'll probably never be a great tattoo artist because... I'm old enough to kind of like keep my ego in check. Maybe that's it. You, you came on this podcast, so you clearly don't have an ego yet. There you go. So did you did you write for Skin and Ink? No. I started out just doing production, which meant like yelling at the art director, apologizing to the printer, and making sure everything got printed on time. And then mm-hmm. I showed them my portfolio, and they started hiring me to do illustration work. I did like a cover. And the irony was uh i had a falling out with the editor because he hired me to do a cover and then he paid me half of what he promised and he told me i should be so lucky and that i would never make it into in tattooing which is kind of funny because it wasn't up to him but he he had such a huge ego he'd never tattooed but because he was an editor of a magazine (laughs) he got the best tattoos so you know he thought he was awesome 
And he's not. So back to skin and ink though. So when you, you left skin and ink though, that's when you started your career as a poster artist. How did you make that uh, transition? Uh, I really hated my job. Like working in porn is kind of like working at Dunkin' Donuts. You apply because you're like, I like donuts. But then by the end, you're like, I can't look at another donut. Kind of the same thing with porn. Like I grew up in a very religious family and I never really looked at porn. You know, I'd seen like a couple of Playboys and was like, oh my goodness. And I never bought porn or any of that shit. And so when I applied, I thought I was applying to, I thought a men's magazine meant like a fashion magazine. And I had always wanted to be an art director, not an artist. Because I thought that would be more fun and more creative. I realize it's not, you know, thankfully. But uh, long story again. Uh, by the time I quit, I was happy to leave. At that time, I couldn't really go anywhere in the company because I didn't have a degree in design. Even though uh, the art directors would hit me up for illustrations all the time. And the assistant art directors would have me do Photoshop work because they didn't really know how to use Photoshop. And I dropped out of art school and I taught myself everything by working at a Kinko's, you know. I didn't even own a computer when I was working at Hustler, but I would just go and, you know, use the computers at Hustler to do the freelance work that I was getting hired to do for them. So at the same time, long story, I was doing posters for a venue called The Troubadour. And if you guys ever listen to The Melvins, the singer from The Melvins, Buzz, his wife was the art director at Barely Legal. And so um, she would hire me to do illustrations, you know, which I'll never show anybody because I'm so embarrassed by the pornographic and how poorly drawn they were. Mostly because of how poorly drawn they were. I would show her the posters I was doing and then she would be like, oh, do you want to do a poster for the Melvins? And at the time I was doing posters on the side and I was making enough money doing that, that it was equal to what I was getting paid at Hustler. So the lady I was dating at the time, I'm like, I need to quit. She's like, don't quit. I was like, why? You hate that I work at a porn magazine. She's like, I know, but if you quit, you'll never make it as an artist. So I quit. (laughs) And uh, six months later, we broke up and yeah, basically posters was a like I had to make up a job because nobody would hire me as an artist. So that's how I did it. And then I got hired as an artist because I had the posters. So when you uh, made the transition, you, you were kind of picking up gigs here and there, but at some point you become doing most of the work for Warp Tour, correct? Uh, for a couple of years, yeah. I had been like almost two years into just doing posters full time and somebody hit me up and they're like, hey, uh, your name came up and you know, would you be interested in doing this? I had no idea. I had been to the, the first Warp Tour in the 90s. I didn't know it was still going on. And, you know, I felt like I was out of touch. And so they hit me up and... It's like, we've been going on for 10 years. You didn't realize? <laughs> yeah, you dummy. The funny thing about the Warp Tour, it was, until it stopped, it was the longest running successful summer music tour in America for, for like 20 years. So Kevin Lyman, the guy who created it, knew what he was doing. So yeah, I started doing that and I did it for a couple of years. It was the first time like I made real money in a month. You know, like I made like 50 grand the first time I did it in a month. And I didn't know what to do with myself. You're like, it's payday. Now what? Yeah. (laughs) So I... I got really stupid and I took six months off and I traveled Europe. This is as good as it's ever going to get. I didn't know. You know, it's just kind of like, 
I was like whiskey tango rich, you know, I was like white trash rich and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to buy all the cigarettes or something like that. You know, I'm going to get all the menthols, you know, it's kind of like a Chappelle show kind of thing. So when it came time to like going back to freelancing, I freaked out because, you know, drawing is just like any other muscle. If you don't exercise it, it atrophies. And so, um, I got hired to do the next year of the warp tour and I just remember calling a friend of mine freaking out, like I fucked up so badly. I haven't drawn in six months and now I have like two weeks to turn all this shit in. So I kind of answered your question, I think. Well, I think it's, it's funny because, you know, long before I knew who you were, I knew your artwork because I remember seeing those posters, you know, once I started going back and looking at them, I was like, oh man, I remember these, you had some in like the programs and different things. It's just kind of crazy, you know? Yeah. I think as like creators, we never think about like 10 years from now or even five years from now. And I wasn't thinking about like, oh, what's this war tour job going to do for me later? How many people will remember that? I was very lucky, you know, like I got so much shit from like all the cool punk rock kids or all the metal kids or whatever for like working the Warp Tour. And working with the Warp Tour has only helped my career because it put me out in front of so many people before social media existed the way it does now that people still remember me, which is I'm very grateful for, I guess, you know, because now the kids that went to the to the punk rock show are now in charge of hiring artists. So I get hired because people are like, I collected your stuff back in the day. So it's great. Yeah, it's just, it's just crazy how like, you know, one thing leads to another. And then the next thing you know, it's like, people are like, oh, I remember when you did this thing, you know, and it's, it just all loops around because they just experienced what you created. But it was memorable enough that they remembered who you were and wanted to take it to the next, you know, level once they were able to make decisions and do things. Yeah, it's like conventions. Like, that's how I met Chris. And Chris has always been very, I, I learned how to promote other artists because of Chris, because he has nothing to gain by promoting me, which he would do. And I was just like, wow, man, that's really awesome. And it didn't click for a long time to, I should promote Chris and I should promote other artists too. It's not like we have such similar styles that we have to worry about it. So the, the people you meet, the, the jobs you do have like a bigger impact than you actually think they will you know, years on down the road, if you continue doing it. The list of clientele of musicians that you've worked with, I mean, it's super impressive to come from just, you know, like I'm going to work on Warped Tour and then all the artists you've worked with outside of that during that time frame. I mean, at this point, is there an artist that you haven't worked with that you want to work with? I don't know. That would be, you know, I could throw that question back at you guys, you know, and then you're, you're just going to sit there and go, God, I, I have no idea. As long as the work keeps coming, like I'm more interested in, I'm not as concerned about how cool the band is, you know, like, am I going to get respect from all the other people I really don't care about, you know, if I work with the cool band or am I just going to be stoked that I get to draw for a living? So if I get to draw for a living and, and I don't get a lot of art direction from bands, which is amazing. So I'm just happy to be doing it, to be honest. Like I got hired by a band called the Dirty Heads. I don't like white boy reggae at all you know <laughs> sorry guys i know I'm, get, I'm, I'm insulting one of the three of you or all three they have one you know. good song um, they have one, one good song i forget the name of it but it's all right you know i just ignored that shit left and right because i was like well you know i'm twice the age i don't live in california i don't smoke weed and you know i'm just I'm, you know i i finished high school so you know fuck man i'm just not into this i thought he was gonna say it and i brushed my hair <laughs> there you go i do and i braided god damn it 
no uh so you know they're like hey would you like to work with us and I was like, yeah, man, you know, so I listened to your music and I was like, all right, what can I take from this and how do I make a poster with this? And working with that band and their audience, their audience is so much more enthusiastic and excited about poster art than all those cool bands are. So I'd rather work with a band like Dirty Heads than XYZ Cool Band because, you know, everybody's too busy posturing, you know, to to be excited about the music or the poster or whatever. I didn't answer your question because I really don't know who I'd like to work with. Because every month it's like, I'm more concerned about, do I have a, a, a project to work on? Then am I working with a cool band? Especially right now, I'm sure. Uh, all that stuff's on hold because nobody can tour. So, you know. I just got a cancellation notice in my email about five minutes ago from Bad Religion and Alkaline Trio. So I totally understand. Ugh, yeah, it sucks. You'd, you'd uh, text me about that. And I bought tickets to a couple other shows that just never happened. And then I was doing some stuff for My Chemical Romance who everybody likes to hate on. I like their music. I'm sorry. Yeah, that the Black Fighters, James Dean, you know, they can't yeah. go wrong with that. Yeah, and I mean, I remember seeing My Chemical Romance at like small little like VFW shows out here. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm in Staten Island right across from Jersey, so we'd go see. So it was crazy to see that band go from that to what they became with like the Black Parade and all those. Like, it was crazy. Yeah. I was working on stuff for them, the Foo Fighters. God, two months has been a long time. It feels like a year. Deftones and Green Day. And I was talking to like Smashing Pumpkins about doing some stuff. Not the band, but some guy that works for the guy that works for the guy that works with the band, you know, cause it, that's pretty much it. Like I don't normally deal with bands directly, which is a good thing because if you have four to five people trying to make a decision, you're in hell. It's the worst thing in the world. So if you just have like one person, it's so much easier for the process for the posters and stuff like that. Cause you do like a, a multimedia kind of product. How, how much drawing do you say goes into like each poster? Is it like a eighty percent? Because it's 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 got has like these multiple layers to it usually. It's hard to say because depends on what you're looking at. Like when I moved to Columbus, I finally had a moment to like slow down. Like living in New York, I felt like I was always in the fast lane, you know. Mm. And I finally got to go in a slower lane when I moved here because my cost of living was less, so I didn't have to like constantly be hustling so it gave me a chance to try something new and i started doing like the anatomical collage stuff and i was like you know i'm gonna do this once and if it doesn't work i can just go back to regular illustrations and so it was it took off and i didn't expect it to so now i have two two styles which is good and with the tattooing it's kind of made me hate doing the anatomical stuff because i feel <laughs> like oh man no one knows i can draw they only see the design aspect of it. And if you show someone a JPEG, it's hard to see the cheap parlor trick that I can do with those posters. So with all that stuff, I don't know, man. Like when you do a mural, you're thinking about the drawing and then you're thinking about how do I execute this drawing? And then you kind of collect everything that you need and then you've drawn it usually or you just freehand it, you know, on the wall. The thing is you already have a formula. So like for me, I have a formula, you know, it's gotcha. like... I'm going to have so many figures. I, I'm limited to so many colors. I have to ink these things because that's how printing works for rock posters. Man, I don't think I'm answering this well. No, I, I just I think I, I think for me, I guess I'm thinking a lot of the some of the monster stuff you did. Yeah. Um, that's not even like the you know like band poster kind of stuff. So with 
like that, like you have like the like a traditional picture of like Bela Lugosi, and then you are redrawing all of that with that anatomical style, and that's all hand drawn, right? The photo is not. That's right. basically that's half toned, you know, and then yes, everything. The, the anatomy underneath is hand-drawn, yeah. So I have to look at a lot of, like, anatomy books because I'm taking an existing pose. I'm not creating my own. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, all right, how does the ribcage work this way? How does the, you know, the femur or the radius or the ulna or – that's all the bones I know, actually, so I can't name <laughs> anymore. But, you know, it's kind of like, how do I make this work? And then how do I stress myself out – by trying to make it as correct as I can. And that's usually what I end up doing. Like, no one notices this shit. It's just for, like, yourself, the <laughs> the extra work that you put into it. You know, as long as someone doesn't say it sucks, you're like, all right, I did good. You well, know, or if you get the chance at a party, you're like, look at what I did. That, that's, you know, that look that at was, that detail. I, as I said, that was going to be my next question. Does it kind of drive you crazy that there's people who, like, look at the work and don't understand it? Like, for me... I know there's been times when my friend Vinny bought, I think, four, like, the classic monsters. Yeah, this is, like, probably almost, I guess, probably, like, 2005, maybe, at, like, an event. And he has them hung in his house all together. And, like, there's just times when I'm just staring at them and just looking at all these different details and layers that most people don't even probably acknowledge. So, like, that's got to be frustrating. (laughs) You know, like, just having somebody look, say, that looks cool. You know, it's like... I don't know. Do you guys do things for other people or for yourself? You know, it's like, I kind of look at it that way. Like, at first, I was like, did you see all this I put in here? And most people could just go, no. And then I realized, like, all right, if I'm going to be happy, I shouldn't worry about that. And a lot of it's me making fun of myself or making fun of the viewer and seeing if they'll catch it, I guess. Or it's just me really being passionate about a subject matter. Like, I did a, a Glenn Danzig and a Jerry Only print and everything in the collage is referencing those people in that band and their their songs. And only one person ever came up to me and was like, I was really high. Yeah. And I saw what you did, man. And I was waiting, like, what did I do? You know, and they never really answered that. But, you know, eventually it was like, I see all the detail you threw in here. I didn't notice that at first. And as an artist and a designer, you kind of, you know, if you make something that someone can look at for three seconds and walk away and never come back to it, you kind of fail, you know, but if you make something that people keep coming back to, then you, you did something right. Even if you didn't get rich off of it, you know, and as long as you can keep doing that and build your audience, um, eventually people will catch on. And if not, when you die, some historian will, you know, celebrate you or not. I have no idea. I can attest to what he's talking about. I have a poster hanging up in my in my dining room, and a lot of times I'm just standing around waiting for something before I leave the house, and I'll kind of glance at it. I swear I find something new on that poster every time, and it's like, is it the uh, the wedding one? No, it's uh, the I have a Blink One Eighty Two one that you'd given me. Oh, okay. That's okay. Uh, the Marilyn Monroe one. Yeah, for your for your wedding one, you gave me a list of all these things that you and Jenny were into. So I went and put that all in there. You know, that was the only time someone's ever done that. Yep, exactly. And so I remember watching you. You did like a video podcast for a little while with Jenny, and I remember watching that. And you guys were like, "I have no idea what this means. I don't know what that is." You know, and I thought it was really funny. And I was just so busy, I couldn't do a list of all the stuff that was in there. He like went so deep on like the references that we gave him. It was like, Oh, we got to like figure this out. What this is <laughs> like some of the stuff, you know, it was pretty cool. 
as creators, you got to find enjoyment somehow. Like you, you, you find enjoyment by selling something, you know, like, all right, good. Someone values it this much, but also just the, you know, what's in it for me, you know, and that's kind of what it is. It's like with the traditional illustration, it's pulling a really good line. Same thing with tattooing. It's like, oh, I didn't fuck this up. So good. I'm so happy. No one else is going to notice that. They they kind of expect you to be that way all the time. And <laughs> so, you know, what do you get out of it? You know, like if you're going to, you guys were talking to uh, a designer for Kid Robot and they were talking about how sometimes they would sneak in their initials or their kids' names and stuff like that. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, all right, this is it feels kind of safe so how can i feel how can i make it feel like i'm getting away with something and so for me that's that's kind of it it's the i'm passionate about the subject matter and then i'm also kind of like i wonder if anybody's even looking at this and if they are maybe i'll hear about it and if not that's cool i'm happy those misfits ones you did was that through them or did they uh did, Fuck no did they come after you? Because I know they're very... Uh... So I did a show at Gallery F, and one of the pieces I did specifically for the show was a Jerry Only, and they posted it. And 30 minutes later, I get some email from some dude named John Caffiero, and I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? He's like, you need to call me right away. And I was like, <laughs> oh. So I Googled him, and I'm like, oh, shit, that's the Misfits manager. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sh- this was like 30 minutes before the show was going to open. So we weren't sure if we could sell them. So I called him. I'm like, hey, man, what's up? He's like, oh, we love the print. Can we have some? I was like, sure. You know, I was like, you're not going to sue me. Are you? He's like, no, we just really like it. And then I realized I had an in with the Misfits. So when they announced their reunion, I hit him up. I'm like, John, I really want to do posters. And he's like, all right, cool. We want to buy the rights to the posters you did. I was like, all right, cool. You know, and have you guys ever sold the rights to anything you created to a client? You can kind of like value it at from today until the end of that property or your death or whatever. So you can kind of like add a couple of zeros to everything. And so I, I was like, well, I can get between like five to 10 grand for each piece you know, because they're going to put it on so much shit because the Misfits, all they do is merchandise shit. You know, they did something with John Varvatos like a couple of months ago that just made me sick. John Caffiero is kind of like in charge of the creative side of the merchandise side of the Misfits, and he is not creative. Like the yeah. most creative thing is if you ever saw his hair, it's really funny. He kind of looks like Getty Lee, but with straight hair, and it's like burgundy. It's so weird. So... You know, we start talking and we're going to actually do like this licensed Misfits thing. And he's like, well, Glenn's really upset with you. I'm like, why? He's like, because you sold some of them. I was like, well, I just proved to you that people want them. He's like, well, I was like, you're not even Glenn's manager. They're like, well, how much do you want for these? I was like, if you can give me two grand each, I'd be stoked because you already pointed out that I made some money. So why don't we subtract that from what I would have asked? And you just paid me the difference. And they're like, yeah, we'll give you like $200 each. And I was oh, like, geez. no. And then John's like, you know, we could sue you. And I was like, if you could sue me, I'd be talking to your lawyer, not you. And he's like, well, I'll give you a couple days to change your mind. I was like, I'm not changing my mind. I'm not going to sell it to you for 200 bucks. Good luck. And that was that. 
And I was super bummed, but whatever. Jerry only still has the stuff hanging in his house, so that's kind of funny. That's just crazy, though, because like a ticket for like the Madison Square Garden shows with two hundred dollars a piece. So like they wanted to give you yes. basically the equivalent of a ticket for your artwork. Yeah. Well, I was like, hey man, Misfits merchandise is terrible. You need to kind of like update it so your hardcore audience isn't bored of what you're doing. Because if you keep throwing the Crimson Ghost on everything, it gets old. You're not Gucci. You're not fucking Polo. You know, you can't get by with just the one logo thing. It's not like a, a lifestyle thing. It's just merchandise. It's only a t-shirt. So, you know, nobody cares that you spent 20 bucks on a Misfits t-shirt. They care if you spent $500 on like a Kanye West t-shirt or whatever. And he didn't care. You know, it's just like, all right, you know, it's kind of wasting my time. And I was just glad that they didn't rip me off, you know? Mm-hmm. So I get emails all the time like, hey, will you reprint this? And I don't know if I should. You know, I, I, it's kind of like they really can't do much, but should I worry if they'll ever work with me? Do I worry if Danzig will show up at my doorstep and get mad at me? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Doyle hit me up for a while, too, after I did the Jerry Only, and he was playing in Columbus here. So I, he's like, hey, we put you on the guest list. So I went and checked out the show, which was terrible. Like, the only good thing were the Misfits covers they did. So I brought him a bunch of posters, and... I was supposed to talk to him afterwards, and they're like, well, he's too busy. I was like, you're in Columbus, Ohio, dude. You know, like, how are you too busy here? So do you have to go to the gym? You know, like, what's (laughs) going on? So his manager messaged me a couple days later, and I was like, all right, you know, let's do this. And they just kind of didn't understand what I was talking about, even though he wanted it. So I realized, like, working with bands, you're not working with the people you think you're working with. You're working with people who only care about what's in their best interest. Like, you know, do we do a project where we make a thousand dollars or do we worry about a project where we make a hundred thousand dollars? Cause I'll get more money that way. Uh-huh. And that's always, you know, how it is. But you know, for every shitty story, which is more fun to tell, I have good stories, which aren't as exciting. So I don't know. You guys deal with, licensors you know people manufacturing stuff you deal with artists i'm sorry travis you know and you (laughs) you definitely have like the fucking war stories where it's just like that dude is fucking nuts or you know he's you know whatever he's just impossible to work with the ego or something oh yeah there's a few of those in the, the toy scene mostly producers Dude, the more you the more you cast the nest nest net to the artists, Corey, you will learn <laughs> there are the artists too. There's two on my like I will never email them again list, and Brian is not one of them. Do you guys know uh, Carl Clear with Guts? Yeah, he mm-hmm. tells me all these great stories about how toy designers, artists, like basically just abuse their audience. You know, like. You're cool enough to buy this, but you're not cool enough to buy this. Uh, and if I see you selling this, you are never going to get to buy anything from me again. Yeah, yeah, that's like the the Safubi side. Yeah, there's a lot of that. It's insane, and it it was kind of like it made me not want to buy any more pieces from that artist because I was like, you know, it shouldn't be that way. You know, like you should be stoked anybody wants your shit to begin with. You know, that is why you're here. It's you didn't put yourself there. It's your audience that put you there. It's that, uh, the lottery system, you know, kind of thing. And kind of, you know, the, that, that scene is, there, there's the question of what's going on with the lotteries and if they're fair, because you'll see like one collector that's like, well, he's got everything. I'm confused. How does, how does he win every time? Oh, <laughs> well, in, in business, it's, it's smart to reward the people who spend that much money on you, you know? 
I've never, like, we did a lottery a couple of times with Chubb Zeroth, but it was, like, through Lulu Bell Toys. So there's all these people involved. And so it never felt unfair. Also, no one had ever heard of us, so we were just shocked anybody wanted to buy the toy. But, um, yeah, I've seen, you know, shit go down with people where, you know, they're in tears because they couldn't get it in the lottery or they, they were in the lottery, but they couldn't get a, a toy. And it's just like, well, you just saved your ass a thousand dollars, man. Like, what are you worried about? But it'll be worth five thousand. <laughs> it's just a bunch of dudes who never listen to the bad brains, listening to wearing bad brains t-shirts, wearing <laughs> flip-up baseball hats in their mom's basement, trying to impress each other. And I shouldn't have said that. That's probably like really mean to all those guys who never heard the bad brains but wear their shirts. <laughs> And collect toys. Well, they were selling the Misfit shirts in Target a couple years ago, so... In a way, you're kind of like, well, Misfits have been around how long? You might as well cash in, you know, fuck it. And then Danzig can sue you guys for, you know, he gave up the rights years ago, and now he realized how he fucked up. Might as well go back for that. Transitioning from, from posters a little bit, um, you started talking about toys, so we'll start talking about that. So you obviously started your, your brand, and what was the drive to start making a toy because obviously you've been making artwork for a long period of time but you decided to jump into the the toy scene what uh what kind of drove you there posters the people at the warp tour were like hey we want to make a vinyl toy can you do that i was like i can design one they're like no can you make one we don't know anything about it so i hit up justin jewett who is my business partner in metacrypt i was like hey man these people want me to design a toy you know people like super seven and all these other people what do I do? Because he collected toys. And um, basically, we were creating Metacrypt before we were creating Metacrypt. You know, this isn't me. It's it's Justin and I. You know, I never wanted to sound like it was just me because I didn't do all the work. You know, Justin did as well. And so Justin was talking to 3A, who produced all the Ashley Wood toys. And we were talking to them, and they were kind of coming back with really high prices and Eventually, you know, we're like, all right, Warped Tour people, this is what everybody's giving back to us, what you want to do. And they're like, what if you produced them and then we just buy them off of you? And it was like, oh, Christ. You know, like I wasn't planning on starting a toy company. So I was like, Justin, how do you feel about this? And we kind of sat on it and we realized we didn't want to do it. And then he had done some web work for Luke Rook and Luke owed him production for the work that he did and he's like hey let's do our thing now and then we started talking about all the dumb shit we loved as kids and what we hadn't seen yet with toys and so never saw a toy with six boobs on it so we got to do it and that's kind of what we did we were just kind of like let's enjoy talking about designing it and let's design it and then if it actually happens cool you know and it happened we were really shocked by that and we were really lucky because skinner let us kind of debut the toy with him so we got to put the shub xeroth head on his ultras bog so we got to do it on that as our first toy and that legitimized us you know and so after that you know with toys you can only produce so many so our stuff was really limited not because we were elitist just that's all we could afford at the time and we grew an audience really quick which was great and the fact that like i had a booth at new york comic-con san diego comic-con and other conventions it helped us get more visibility and so yeah you know it was we didn't think it would ever last more than a month and we were really surprised by it you know i'm 
sure you guys are the same way. Like, holy shit. You know, I can't believe this is continuing. Like, Chris, you were talking about the uh, the print that you did. You were like, yeah. I had no idea, you know. So then you're just like, well, I guess I'm doing prints now, you know, and see where that goes. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. It's, it's funny. It's just like in the art world, you just don't know what's going to hit. And that's why sometimes you just got to do everything you can. <laughs> I think you should. If you ever listen to, like, all those motivational speakers talking about marketing and business, it's all about, like, how soon and how fast can you fail? How often, you know, because as soon as you fail, you figure out how to do it correctly. So yeah, you should definitely try everything you can. And then you stick with what actually works. You know, you took a chance on the print and it worked. So you should definitely do more, you know, and you should figure out a way to, to make that a part of what you offer every month or every year, or just at conventions and stuff, because you realize now your audience wants that. And your job is to create things that your audience wants. And be true to yourself, of course. Yeah, it's true. It's definitely, definitely Sorry, a good man. I'm a cheerleader. I, I appreciate it. You know, you you know, uh, in the Strange Cat stuff is, like, the, the quality of the production is so amazing. Then it's like, well, do we do shirts? You know, do we do prints? You know, or do we go outside the sphere of toy artists and do we work with them in a non-Kid Robot kind of way? And, you know, you see where you can go with that. Yeah, I, I try to let stuff happen organically as far as, like, the stuff that, that we're going to create. Uh, um, you know, I, I look for stuff, and but I'm not, like, actively finding a specific type of person or this or that to make that type of toy. Just, you know, if something catches my eye. Yeah, you guys are going with your gut. You know, you're like, this is as creators. We should not make anything we would never actually want ourselves because it's going to show and, and people are going to realize that. You know, there's no heart in this. And looking at the Strange Cat stuff, you're doing different things, which is really, really fun. And that's kind of what you guys need to do as as producers. You know, the, the problem with, like, toys and, like, streetwear, they interact a lot, especially nowadays. They're constantly all pulling from the same well of ideas, and it's boring. You know, like, I don't need to see another, like, Star Wars packaging you know, logo ripoff, you know, of Kenner or any of that stuff. Like, uh, it was done just fine 10 times ago, but now you're on 30 times and I don't want to watch, I don't, I don't want to see it. So you guys are definitely doing different things, which is really important. There's the Blink 182 of music where kids get into it and then they realize there's bigger, better, heavier, cooler bands than Blink 182. That's like the gateway band. You know, and so, like, you guys were talking about earlier in one of your podcasts how, like, Dunnies were the gateway to designer toys, you know? So it's your responsibility to not copy Kid Robot. Your responsibility is to go, okay, there's room for Kid Robot, but there's also room for me. You know, and Travis was saying something like, I would see people's, you know, photos, and I would see toys I produced, Travis UVD toys, that he produced next to, like, Funko's. You know, and that's rad because you have this huge company with so much money and so much reach, yet people are willing to also buy your stuff. I don't know. That's that's like my big gripe about toys and, and, and art and artists is you see someone succeed and then you copy that person, which is not a good idea. It almost always ends in poor results, right? <laughs> like, I mean, every now and then, I guess it works, but, or it's just boring. Yeah. Or people are going to see your work and go, oh, hey, that's cool. It reminds me of cause. Oh, hey, that's cool. It reminds me of fill in the blank, you know, fail or, you know, uh, Maharishi or some shit like that. Or, 
you know, the hundreds or whatever, you know, it's, it's, if someone ever sees your work and they say it reminds them of someone else, you kind of failed. Yeah. But that's also kind of, well, I think that's one of the big problems with art is that most people do need to, those people in general, it is, especially when it comes to music and art, they always have to associate it to something because it makes them feel comfortable and it makes them be able to identify with it easier. I think, because if it is something completely different and they can't definitely, and, yeah, and if they if it's something completely different and they don't know how to react to it, people then automatically don't like it. Almost, it's a weird. It's a weird thing. That's true. The thing I swear it's like the go-to question whenever somebody that has no clue what to, like designer toys are or the artists are. The go-to question is, are these Pokemon? Wow, really? I've got I've gotten that a few times, like selling them on the bus. Are these Pokemon? <laughs> or are selling they from toys an anime? on the bus? Yeah, he has a like a mobile van, like that you can sell toys in. Oh, yeah, like what's fuck? Cool. You know, like the um, the book, what's that thing? Bookmobile? Yeah, the Toymobile. Like 10 years ago in New York, in Soho, there used to be like a vinyl toy truck that would park in Soho. And I thought it was like the greatest thing in the world because they were like a couple blocks away from Kid Robot. And there were all these people who were just, they were asking the Pokemon question, like, what is this? What You know, and they it was such a great way to build your audience and educate people on the vastness of that culture. So, wow, man, that's pretty rad. Yep, but haven't been able to do it for a few months. You would think you, you just would... do drive-bys. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I would think you would be able to. Well, it's not See, like what... a like a window display. It's you got to come up in, like, yeah, but... with me. Uh, yeah, I guess. It's not like an ice cream truck. It's more of a... No. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Uh, okay. On one side of it, Brian, JC painted a giant mural on it. So it's like a mobile mural toy mobile. Oh, nice. Oh, he did both sides? I thought he only did the one. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much in Chicago at this point. It's amazing. Him and uh, Hebrew and... Sent Rock. They're kind of the three big people right now. And then Junkyard still has some murals hanging out, but he moved away, so... Oh, yeah. So, yeah, toys. That's kind of... Sorry, man. That's how it started. And then I designed, like, another toy for Metacrypt called the Druid. And then people were like, so what's the next thing you're going to do? And I felt like I had already peaked. So I just was too afraid to touch designing toys again. And then started talking to Travis. And you thought it would be a good idea to make enamel pins and figure out of the ghost boner. So you brought me out of retirement, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, I'm stoked on it again. And like working with Travis was really easy. And you were going to like, you were going to be in Columbus and I had like an hour before you're going to show up. So I just drank a bunch of coffee and I came up with like 30 ideas of what we could do. And I probably stressed you out because I'm like, here we go. We're doing all this, you know, because I didn't want to show up and be like, yeah, I don't really like talk about myself. I wanted to like be prepared. And I assumed two out of the 30 ideas would get greenlit, you know, and I'd be happy about that. I think we did like five. Yeah. Uh, just the production cost was just kind of killing us. So it was like, eh, you know. Yeah, we'll find another way. We're pivoting and finding another way. That's what we're gonna do. But yeah, so recently I just started working on a, a new toy, and you know, I showed it to Travis. And once I'm done with it, I'll have people kind of tear it apart and tell me what doesn't work, and then I'll fix that, and then I'll see if there's any interest in it. Yeah, I think from a, I mean, from looking at it, I think it's gonna be a killer design. It'll just be the mechanics of getting it done. No, I I, I threw a bunch of shit in there, not knowing if it's even like possible you know to mold so i just assumed i would get talked down from the the crazy ledge of detail 
I mean, in most most things, you should go as far as possible and then let somebody tell you what they can't do. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The older you get, you realize that. I would normally just censor myself. Now I'm leaving it up to an expert to censor me instead of me being the novice. But no, that, that thing's going to be killer. You guys obviously can't see it, but trust me. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting, like... I think uh, from an outsider's point of view, you see toy artists and you're just like, those dudes are rich, right? Because these things cost $100 each or $500 and they sell out and you're like, that person's got to be rolling in it. You realize like, nah, they're grinding away every day. They cost like $60 each to make. (laughs) Yes. And the amount of hours you put into it, you make about five bucks an hour, you know per toy basically. So it's pretty interesting. It's all labor of love. So it's, it's fun to do. And for the outsiders, if they think you're bigger than you are, then fucking cool, man, whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of uh, the motto I kind of carry is like, just make everybody think you're bigger than what you are. I always like it when somebody's like, it's just you and one other guy that does that company. Yep. That's it. Dude, you're like six feet tall. So you've, you've won (laughs) and you have a great voice. So God damn. I have a face for radio. That's what I've always been told. Hey guys, we've been talking for a while now, so let's go ahead and start to wrap this one up. Brian, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and telling everybody where they can find you on social media. You can find me at my name. So it's Brian Ewing, E-W-I-N-G. I mumble, so hopefully you guys understood that. And uh, same thing with like Facebook and Twitter and all that. I mean, it's all related. So best way to find me is just my website. So it's brianewing.com. And Chris? Uh, at Chris RWK and at Robots Will Kill. Corey? Strange Cat Toys and all, all the social medias and strangecattoys.com. And I'm Travis Likens. You can find me at UBD Toys or UBDtoys.com. But first, we want to take a second to thank our sponsors. First up, we have Stickerfied. Stickerfied.com. No Love City. No Love City.com. TYO Toys. TYOtoys.com. And SD Prints. SDScreenprinting.net. This has been the Urban Robot Cat Podcast, the show about art and the people who make it.